Shrink Wrap Radio number 844. Return guest Dr. Gay Bradshaw on her book, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Gabe Bradshaw, who holds doctorate degrees in ecology and psychology, has been sharing cultures and homes with animals all her life. For the past 25 years, her work has been dedicated to the self-determination and well-being of wildlife and domesticated animals. Her diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder among free-living African elephants sparked a new paradigm of understanding trans-species psychology. Today, we'll be discussing her book, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell. Dr. Gay Bradshaw, welcome back to Shrink Wrap Radio. Hi, everyone. <laughs> yeah, well, I say welcome back because fairly recently, just several interviews ago, uh, you were interviewed by my London colleague, Isabella Clark, about your forthcoming book, The Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children and Creating Connected Communities. And uh, I was so impressed by all you had to say on that interview that I was looking for an excuse to, uh, to interview you myself, you know, and to get more of the uh, Dr. Gay goodness. And, <laughs> and so I was well, that's a lovely from... It's a lovely occasion when someone wants me to speak more. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, and uh, they, that's my job, get people speaking and get them speaking more. Now, um, so I was, I suggested that we might discuss a different one of your books that's already been out for a while, which was Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell. And thank you for showing our audience what that book looks like. It's got a beautiful picture of a couple bears on the cover and... Uh, Lots of pictures on the inside that are incredible, to tell you the and, truth. And lots of pictures that are incredible. And in fact, I have the Kindle version, and I can tell folks that in case they are drawn to the Kindle version, that's got all the pictures too. So it's really wonderful. But the book itself, uh, the physical book, would make a wonderful coffee table book if people still have coffee table books. Uh, because it's just it's a lovely book that guests would want to pick up and leaf through and uh, and get drawn in to probably as they were doing so. Um, it's going to be an audio version as well. Oh, good. Yeah, I listen to yeah. a lot of a lot of a lot of audio books, um, but but this version, this Kindle version, really worked for me. So it strikes me as kind of unusual to write a, a whole book based on conversations with a third party. There are probably other books like that out there, but I can't think of one. I don't know who the third party is. Are that the Bears or Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, both, I guess. That's, that's a fair point because uh, you dedicate the book to the Bears by name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, I thought that was a beautiful gesture and certainly in keeping with the whole book. What was in your mind when you made that decision? Well, I'll give you a little bit of a background how the book came to be. Charlie sure. Russell um, is the, and the bears are co-subjects of the book, yeah. uh, talking with bears, conversations with Charlie Russell. 
And Charlie and I worked together for almost 10 years. Our intent was, we did write things together and spoke together and things like that, but our intent was um, to combine our backgrounds and our perspectives to really talk about how bears really are and really dissolve and vanquish the myths uh, um, under which bears and other wildlife, but in this case, in particular, bears labor uh, at, at the cost of their lives. And so we worked for many years. Uh, Charlie, by the way, his birthday, uh, he passed a few years ago, but his birthday is next week on May 7th. So this is a nice celebration for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie uh, was born and raised in Alberta, Canada, in the mountains uh, from a pioneer family. And he spent literally his entire life there, aside from a few forays. One was 10 years, which I'll talk in more depth, 10 years in Kamchatka, in Siberia, in Russia, right. in the yep. wilderness. And he just wanted to get to know and understand bears. And so we worked together. And, and the attraction um, of working together was I have these degrees, <laughs> you know, I have <laughs> these, uh, you know, collective, collective approval of, uh, of in science and, and ecology and psychology. And I had written quite extensively about the neuropsychology, which I talk about in the other interview, um, coming from the neuroscience, brain science perspective and psychological perspective right. on experience and lives. And Charlie um, was, is, experienced and in depth and incredibly admired and respected was nonetheless his ideas were nonetheless dismissed a lot of times and the real reason is because they go up against the status quo the convention which is very yeah. anti-bear so what brought so we worked together and then unfortunately charlie passed and so i you know we had committed to writing a book and i ended up writing this book um it's about him but it's about his his knowledge system, his episteme and ontology way of being, and that of the bears, um, which they shared. And so the dedication really um, is uh, is are, are for the bears that he knew intimately and he lived with. He, he lived with many, many different bears, but these were in particular bears that he had uh, spent quite a bit of time right. and um, shared, shared things together. Yeah, yeah. And so... Um... Were you together physically with him for these interviews? Because uh, nope, he because he he traveled a lot and uh, nope, no, we never met. Not in you, not we never, never met in this in this plane. I'll put it that wow. way. Wow, <laughs> that, that's that's pretty amazing. Because you would have been such good friends uh, had you met in person. And so, how did you structure the interviews? How I assume you recorded them. They were recorded somehow. Um. Some of them were, you know, the way it started um, is my elephant book on elephant PTSD, which is Elephants on the Edge, came out about the same time that Charlie's book on grizzly bears um, called Grizzly Heart, which I recommend people pick up. It's gorgeous. He has other books as well, which are um, also illustrated with his photography, which are incredible. Um, they came out the same time and someone said, you know, you two need to talk to each other. <laughs> Yeah. And I think Charlie and I both kind of, you know, separately rolled our eyes, but we said, okay, fine. So yeah, right. you know, we, talk, we we started talking and then um, before we knew it, it was almost 10 years. <laughs> wow. So the, the, I didn't, we just really spent, you know, sometimes on average, it would be one to two times a, a week that we would talk and I would transcribe in my little, you know, on my laptop and things like that and write things up and then send it to him and he would edit and it was really, there really wasn't an organization. It was really quite organic. Uh -huh. And a large part of it was him getting to know my vocabulary, me getting to know his vocabulary in the sense of mapping them together, what they, what these things actually meant in, in, in yeah. reality. Yeah. And uh, so over how many years did the, were the interviews spread? Maybe you said it. Um, you know, they were almost 10, almost 10 years. Ten, and they were so much interviews years. as they were. Um, conversations. Conversations, so example, yeah. Yeah, and practically everyone, um, this is because, you know, we live out in the country, not not as quote-unquote wild as Charlie does, but um, starts with the weather or starts with something that he saw or something that I saw. Yeah. And that would uh, really start to uh, sort of be the thread that, you know, 
um, led to a, um, a conversation about a particular topic or issue. How did his views about wild animals support your own thinking? Well, at a very first order level, very simple level, the work that I did and I approached using neurosciences and psychology as a heuristic. Um, and what I mean by that is this is not the truth, but it's a way of, you know, like the Buddhists talk about pointing at the moon. They are fingers that point out the experience of being. Yeah. Yeah. And my work, when I say my work, it's not original. I, I drew from this giant bank of neuroscience and psychological research, which has been going on for, you know, almost a century. And basically, all I did was pull things together. This is like with the elephant PTSD and show that indeed they do have elephants and all animals. Uh, later, this became public in uh 2012 at the Cambridge University, but um, that they have the brains and the minds and the behavior and consciousness that we do. In other words, they have the apparatus, the apparatus yeah. for the capacities um, that we cherish and once considered uniquely human. And so that really predicts in the case of bears that they have all the sensibilities, all the intelligence, um, that emotions, capacities for emotions and loving and relationships, et cetera, that we do. And so based on that, you know, it really it really cast aside these kind of mindless monsters, the way they're depicted typically in the popular media, which is fueled by, um, in large part, the scientific community as well. And so essentially what Charlie had found through his own experience is the same thing, that they were very sensitive. Um, they were very open. They were extremely intelligent. And I don't mean, you know, sort of Albert Einstein type of intelligence, but in the sense of emotional and social intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Very perceptive. Uh, they were very, they are very pro-social. Um, they're very equanimous and they are um, quite open to relationships with human. And they're not uh, these aggressors and these violent creatures the way they're depicted. Yeah, that the book uh, keeps emphasizing that uh, very powerfully. And uh, were there any places where uh, his thinking changed your thinking, or, uh, or or that caused you to modify your own thinking? Um, I I would say after I wrote the book, you know, because um, when. Charlie's health had declined and was declining. And, um, and I, you know, I, I was committed that this, whatever this was, was going to see the light of day yeah. and, and get published. Um, and so um, after he passed, I had to, you know, it was quite shocking, even though, you know, we both knew it was coming, etc. Um, and I had to start de novo. Uh, he had never wanted, he said, I don't want to, I don't want to be this. I don't want a book written about me. It has to be about the bears. And I kept on saying, well, you know, in order for people to really see and understand bears the way you do, we've got to understand you and see and see why you see what you do. Yeah. And so essentially um, I was kind of at loss when he passed. Cause I'm like, well, what do I, how do I write? You know, what do I do? Yeah. It felt, it was very, it felt very sacred. And I felt incredibly, ethically um uh what's well, not burdened but the you know Cons ethically sensitized. Yeah. you know ethically sensitized you know okay. because here yeah. i was putting down on paper um um a, an individual and the bears you know um beliefs and philosophy etc and, and indeed i was speaking for them now just to put a caveat there is uh, you know through the years charlie would say i'd send him something because i did most of the writing he'd say well did I write that or say that or did you do that? So in other words, <laughs> you know, it got to the point where we really yeah. didn't have that. In terms of learning, the reason I brought that up is because after I, you know, I was kind of eyes on the prize, you know, get the book done. And then there was kind of this wake of it's done. Um, and then there's been all these aftershocks for me about how amazing he is and how amazing the bears are. And so I would say that, that has really been where my learning has deepened mm -hmm. is, is is in the um, aftermath of of completing this book and then really kind of like going, oh my god you know I wow you know the depth of his um and we would call it the total 
oneness, the total um, alignment um, that he had with the quote unquote rest of nature. It was extraordinary, extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, relative yeah. to relative to the dominating culture today. Yeah, and of course the writing is very beautiful, I have to say, and it's 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 seamless. The integration is seamless uh, because you know it could just it could either be you quoting him or it could be you speaking, and it's you know I, every now and then I would have to move my eyes to see. Uh, let's see, are there quotation marks around that? Mm-hmm. Or or not, and uh, mm-hmm. so it's it's really beautifully oh, done. Well, there, there there are. Let me just tell you, there are things. So, for example, um, there's another book um, that I, I will send to you the title, and that was completed before. Um, it was a compilation of different writers and and photographers talking about Charlie's grandfather, who was a uh. a big figure in Charlie's life. And it was in the area in which he was uh, born and raised. And I also encourage people to to buy that book. It's got gorgeous pictures, and it has um, an essay in there about uh, of Char- by Charlie, which talks about his grandfather. And so he sent me. He wrote this essay, and then he, he sent it to me. He said, you know, can you go through and you know see if you know does it make sense and da 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 da. And so there was a lot of things that I didn't know. For example, just in the detail, uh, his his grandfather was a, was a very skilled machinist. That's not entirely his career as such. Charlie became so. And just in terms of um, how detailed, like, you know, sighting a gun or, um, you know, weighing the powder um, or walking in the woods. There's, I can't even quite describe it, but there's a there's a re, there's a refinement, yeah. uh, an incredible refinement um that in order to understand what charlie did um i really learned about that kind of refinement yeah. and that's the kind of refinement of how wildlife live yeah that really comes through in the book and um one area of of uh, consonance between you two is that the the uh, understanding just as in your uh, finding about the the elephant suffering from PTSD is that bears have been traumatized by us similarly, mm-hmm. and so you were both on the same page around that, mm-hmm. and and it really uh, it really becomes a a piece with your work in that area. Mm-hmm. And, and that was something that was a little that is another example of co learning. You know, because I was coming from, you know, obviously the 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 lens, as you described, from the traumatology and the psychological vulnerability, et cetera. And so, you know, that was that helped Charlie. I mean, it was it, it, a large part of this was just giving language to things, you know, like they said, that co-language making. So, for example, you know, he started he said, you know, bears have started. He, a large part of his work really focused on understanding all bears, but particularly grizzly and brown bears. And brown bears are the counterparts of grizzlies in in, um, Eurasia. They're very, very big. And, you know, what he noticed, he said, you know, bears are changing. And he said, you know, I sometimes carry bear spray, which he never did. Right. Uh, And he said, well, when I remember. (laughs) So point being is is you know his thing was there, there's no reason to fear a bear you know you need to understand we need to understand nature we need to understand bears and wolves and all of these individuals that that have been vilified and they're not that way at all it's the humans projection if you want to use that language of their own fears and insecurities etc right. um but you know it's that notion so the co-learning was that when he said bears had changed is, you know, the typical bear is they're shot at. So when a bear is killed, you'll see not infrequently when the bear is skinned, multiple bullets, not from that one occasion, but Uh from being shot at many, many times. And it's no exaggeration to say that the majority of bears, whether they're black bears, brown bears, grizzlies, or whatever, have witnessed their mother's killed in front of them um that's what they do yeah <laughs> and, and that's what the elephants had, had a similar yes. experience yes. and we're, we're traumatized as 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 youngsters 
and uh, and in, in your work, you found that the bears actually didn't reach uh, elephants didn't reach maturity, brain maturity, forebrain maturity until they were around thirty five years old. And right. interestingly, I was reading, <laughs> I was listening to an audiobook of Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and it was a book that I had loved as a child and some and remembered. And I thought, geez, can I relate to this as an adult? And it is so rich with detail and observation about Asian culture at the time that he was there mm-hmm. growing up in India. And uh, he remarks, Something about bears, about elephants not maturing till they're thirty-five. Mm-hmm. I I was amazed that they knew that somehow that and that he he knew that. I thought, wow, it's wonderful the way we find things that we're reading and they all end up dovetailing in a way. And, well, a uh, lot of uh, there's a lot of quote unquote knowledge about elephants um, in Asia in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they were um, used as slaves. They were used for work, and they were used in temples, which they still are, etc. And so all of that understanding, well, I should say the knowledge about elephants, um, was also done for a a purpose, because when the male elephants, this is a generalization, like you said, when they reach quote-unquote sexual maturity or whatever, that's when they go into must, the hormonal cycle, etc. And that's when they typically are chained. Um, and beaten and tortured, uh, they are as, as children as well to submit. Yeah. Um, but during that time, uh, elephants are the ma- what they saw, the mahuts, the keepers of these elephants um, are very, very cruel to the males because they're very dangerous. Yeah. And there's nothing da- there's nothing dangerous about a bear. There's nothing dangerous about an elephant. They're big unless they're threatened. Yeah, unless they're yeah. threatened and they've been hurt. Um, uh, and, and traumatized. Yeah, and in that way, they're not that different from us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's interesting to think of how these <laughs> these bad characteristics of our humanity are also evident in our own culture, mm-hmm. in our own civilization. You know, mm-hmm. our our mm-hmm. our fear of the stranger and all the projection, you know, that leads to, to wars and to racism and to all of that stuff. So, so it's really fascinating at every level. Well, let's dive into the book a bit. And one of the superstars in the book is a brown bear in Kamchatka, I believe. Was, was she in Kamchatka? And, um, and she, and Take us through that relationship. I mean, there's so much that he learned that she taught him, you know, which might sound incredible on the face of it. So take us through that. It's a beautiful you're, relationship. You're speaking about Brandy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, Brandy, um, that was the name that Charlie uh, gave this female brown bear. Um, they knew each other many, many years. And uh, what really happened, which is also... You know, when you say it's, you know, I think I wrote something in there is what we call extraordinary is really quite ordinary, except that we don't let these things happen. And because Charlie um, was the person he was, these things were kind of ordinary. I mean, he was like, you know, Uh, overawed. But um, in a sense, these were ordinary things because of who Charlie was. Um, Brandy was a female brown bear. And over the years, seven years, she had three sets of uh, baby bears and she adopted or recruited, <laughs> as Charlie called it, uh, Charlie as uh, a nanny to take care of her children. Yeah. And, um, Charlie, uh, when he went to Russia, he went there for the purpose of saying, OK, we're, I'm going to show people that if you can that you can live with wild bears um in perfect perfect peace and and harmony and everything like that the reason he chose russia is because he thought relative to north america um the impact of humans violence human violence on was was less because essentially in north america the lower 48 states basically have extirpate you know it killed all the all the bears um so he thought well you know this area it was a wilderness area in russia was probably less impacted. He did find later that there were a lot, a lot of poaching. 
but not to the degree that there had been here. Anyway, so he decided to go there and try out his hypothesis that we can live in peaceful coexistence with bears, big, big bears, <laughs> you know, yeah. these are, like, you know, uh, um, a ton or whatever. And, um, and so he did, this was not part of the plan, is he ended up rescuing um, in the, like the first year, three baby brown bears whose mothers had been killed. And then they had been taken to a zoo and, you know, treated terribly. And then they started to grow up a little bit and um, become bears, as Charlie called it. And they were going to be killed because they were unmanageable. So they asked Charlie to, uh, would he rescue them and then bring them into the wilderness? And as he said, all of this happened because at the time, this was when Russia was going through its big change, you know, social and political change. And so it was, you know, it was a little... Uh, kind of a window otherwise there's so many right. regulations yeah so he um out of the blue um was put in charge and he did it you know from scratch um becoming a mother bear for these three young bears yeah and so at one point brandy um you know he, he'd see her around and um one day she had her cubs with her and she left <laughs> she just left her cubs with Charlie and his cubs just left, which is, which is really unusual because our what our our mythology at least tells us is the mother keeps the the cubs close to her and uh, and does everything she can to keep them away from humans. So uh, to abandon her cubs seemed like a very uh, creative and uh, strange thing. Well, it wasn't abandoned. It was truly like, you know, child minding, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, you know, just to for people who aren't so familiar, um, bears, mothers raise the children, you know, on their own. They, they're not like the elephants who have a whole natal family that has aunts and baby, other babies and siblings and cousins and things like that. Bears are single mothers in that way. Um, and so, again, this is like you said, you know, what did I, I mean, it's astounding. Well, and, and so, you know, he was kind of shocked <laughs> and then, you know, um, the babies were kind of like, what, what's mom doing? And then it just became a pattern. And he did that with three sets of her, of her, um, uh, uh baby bears. Yeah. Her baby. And, and the, so the, there's, there's another thing that emerges in this is that he was trying to fatten these bears up as much as he could because the, the winter when the winter hibernation period comes, if they don't, if they haven't packed on enough weight, they won't make it. Right. And, and so he is really trying to, to mother them as best, as best he could. That was maybe even before, before Brandy came along, he built a shelter and tried to did what he could to try to, to feed them and, and, uh, and fatten them up to make it through the winter. And then he had to come return to this country each time uh, to Canada or wherever he was hanging out. And, um, and he didn't know for sure if he would see them, you know, when he came back. Yeah. yeah. Now, in, in typically um, in Kamchatka and elsewhere, but the mother, the, the babies, they're born in the den and they stay in there and they nurse with the mother and then they come out and they're basically with their mother under her umbrella of love and protection for three years. And they den with her for two to three years. And so um, it's not just, you know, it, it it's building social skill, what we would call social skills and learning how to be a bear psychologically, you know, ethically, et cetera. And his cubs, just because of the exigency, his cubs were he had to get them ready and teach them how to be bears, you know, how to fit, go after salmon. Salmon is a real staple, very important staple um, for, for fat, pine nuts, very, very important for building up that insulation. And then um, they had to go hibernate. I mean, they had to find and build a den on their own. And that was hugely um you know, emotional and scary for Charlie, you know, is a, that's another thing that really speaks to him in terms of his his faith in life and, and the depth of his teaching yeah. and guidance for these bears. As he said, the cubs knew more than he did in, in a large way. So, you know, it's it's that notion of the, the beautiful interweaving of nature and nurture. But they did come back and they made it. Um, and not only that, because when they come out of hibernation, they had to learn how to find food and be on their own. 
unlike the, the like Brandy's kids, that when they came out of hibernation, they would be with her and she yeah. helped protect them. And she would, you know, school them around to show them how to eat and get bring them food and things like that. Yeah. Uh, there's, speaking of the photos, there are the wonderful photos of uh, of the brown bear watching Charlie go after salmon and, and mm -hmm. catch salmon. And mm -hmm. he was he was demonstrating, and you can tell the the bear is looking on <laughs> with yeah. great great you know interest, you know, and yes. uh, is learning in the process. Yes, and and it was blowing his mind to discover th that he could teach them in that way, and that they would pay close attention, mm -hmm. <coughs> and it was important for their survival. Mm-hmm, and that is again that's a deeper at a deeper level when. You see how receptive to they are and how they really um, care. You know the the, the 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 deep you know psychological connection that all of nature has, and the sense the depth of um, this bond and um, affinity and um, mutual respect. So you know, like I said, there's so many different layers to when you look at a particular or hear or read. A particular incident um there's so many deeper and deeper layers right really what was going on yeah well when he would go you know leave for, uh, and come back months later he didn't know whether the bears were going to remember him and yeah. um, there's i think there's one description where this bear comes charging and he thinks oh my god and uh <laughs> They already had enough heft on them that uh, it could have been a bad, a bad scene. And uh, but, but they did remember him. And as when the bear finally got within striking distance, actually, it it threw itself on on the ground, uh, holding its paws in the air. And I uh, forgot what the significance of of that that was. Partly submission, but partly also uh, they. It's a, it's a uh, tell us about the significance of the pause in the air. Oh, well, there's no submission. It's just a you know, it's just kind of like joy. You know, it's just uh, joy and full bodied, and they you know, full bodied and happy, and they love sliding in the snow. That was the other thing. And, yeah, yeah, and, and touching, uh, and touching. So there, there really isn't any kind of submission. And in fact, that's really the idea that it's such a prominent, um, unquestioned um assumption in biology and and science in general that there's always a hierarchy and there's always a sort of pecking order and there's the alpha and then there's the 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 gamma or whatever beta and and that there is this notion of dominance and whatever and there that really was very prevalent um it's still there but it's less so among the elephant thing because there's not, nothing like that in the elephant cultures nothing like that even in bear culture now that doesn't mean that everyone's the same, but it's just this. Um, we have a different. We, we we tend to always order things, you know, into this hierarchy because that's right. how we, how we work. Yeah. But that's not that's not how nature works. When you look real carefully. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you end up connecting uh, Charlie with uh, with David Bohm. You're very uh, struck by an interview that you heard with David Bohm, and you wanted to share that interview, uh, David Bohm being uh, a uh, nuclear physicist. A um, quantum physicist, yeah. Yeah. A what physicist? A quantum physicist. Quantum physicist, yeah. right, mm -hmm. of the tiny stuff. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, so tell us what... Uh, you know that that turned out to be uh, uh, something that the two of you shared. And what was it that made you uh, want to share David Bohm? Did you ever meet David Bohm? Did you have the opportunity no, to do I, that? I, no, I didn't. Um, I studied physics and I read him. You know, I'm not a you know a fancy physicist, but I his work is so tremendous. And and he's a tremendous person because he he really took. The philosophical, the ontological, you know, and practical lessons from the mathematics, from the physics itself to 
what has this got to do with everyday life, you know? And he kind of went to the streets, you know, he spent quite a bit of time talking with people um, about this. Uh, he spoke with spiritual teachers, et cetera, uh, to really understand the implications of what quantum physics was pointing out and implied. Um, the, the reason we, so I've always been very fond of his writing and, and mm -hmm. his work. And we were writing our quote unquote book but again, I was still, you know, kind of using neuroscience and psychology as somewhat of a, you know, backbone or as a heuristic, like I did, you know, the elephant book in Carnivore Minds. And I don't know, it just, you know, we just kind of came to a standstill. It just didn't, you know, it just lacked that je ne sais quoi, you know. And I don't know, I really don't know what it was, but I there, I came across this um, interview um, at the Board Institute in, in Copenhagen that David Bohm gave before he lectured there, I don't know. I just said, you know what, you know, I, so I sent it to Charlie and I said, Charlie, take a look, you know, we would exchange things back and forth. And Charlie was just dumbstruck. He said, I feel like I've lost, I've found my long lost brother. Yeah. And so um, that's really what happened. And so that really shifted our perception that really shifted the framework by which we were approaching our conversations and understanding the bears and, nature and each other <clears throat> so that's really what happened and i i had not again the, the book that you see here um was very different than what charlie and i were writing together which was um then again this one the, the gist is the same but this book really is looking at charlie his episteme and ontology and that of the bears yeah. their ways of knowing and their ways of being and so all of this, when I was writing this, I was like I said, it was I wasn't even sure what I was going to talk about, how to even organize it. So right. it just came together somewhat. Each chapter was sort of organic. Right. Um, and then I wasn't even going to even think about David Bohm. But all of a sudden that chapter just popped out and it really right. it really had to be. It's in yeah. my mind, it's the most important. Yeah. chapter. All. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What they seem to uh, to share in common was. Uh, a way of uh, in, of grappling not just with the scientific details, but also that it was important to develop an intuitive feel for mm -hmm. phenomena, for nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and it's um, it's you know, just sort of in a simplistic way. It's um, I mean, they're all scientists at one level, but it's in terms of how they use their insight and how they use their mind. Um, and it's a non-dual. It's a non-dual view. And Charlie's approach, you know, I mean, again, we're we're always hampered by language, but was non-dual, as of course, by definition, <laughs> that's what kind of physics is, right? And so, you know, that really, it was it was just kind of like opening up the aperture to be able to look at these experiences. And if you look into it, it what was really extraordinary is that David Bohm and Charlie had childhood experiences which were very similar in terms of understanding their place and experience with nature. Yeah, yeah. So your work is very much about consciousness and um, what what is your view of consciousness? <laughs> <laughs> Just a little question there. $9.99, I have the answer. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I guess if you wanted to say what I've fallen into in the sense of, you know, my own meditation practice and reflections and um, having wonderful experiences with humans and non-humans, largely that, it, it just seems that in, in particular Zen Buddhism in the work of Thich Nhat Hanh and Eckhart Tolle, those are, is that consciousness as such is this sort of, the, this morning I was saying currency. I don't know if that's sort of the right word. Um, it's a substrate, you know, it's, it's a substrate and, um, and it's essentially what makes the world go round. Uh, you know, I don't really have a view on it. I mean, everyone has consciousness, at least that's what we think. Um, but, you know, you know, like I said, it's a non-dual view. So, you know, in the case of Charlie and the bears, that's how I see, it's my own experience. And I know Charlie was as well, is living in the world which is not just hung up on these bodies it's not that the bodies are wonderful the bodies we love these bodies <laughs> and that's why we <laughs> love others. that's why we love each other 
they're just wonderful but that there is a deeper current there's a deeper um processes you know david Bohm talks about the implicit and the explicit order etc there's more there than see you know that, that meets the eye definitely yeah, yeah. And essentially you know i guess i would look at consciousness like an iceberg <laughs> you know that you know what we live is the tip i yeah. mean that's how Freud looked at it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you really understand that, you know, we get distracted by what's happening at the tip of the iceberg. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But there's so much going um deeper, well well beyond ten. Yeah, I think it used to seem odd to us that that in the East people people who came from the East would refer to the science of yoga. And, you know, the science, how can that be a science? But it seems like in fact, close observation from within or without, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's, you know, the use of, you know, I'm not saying anything people don't know, but when in this dominating culture, um, which has been associated with Western civilization, but obviously globalized, science is really a tool. It's the tip of the iceberg. And essentially um, everything else below has been excluded. Um, and so that's why we have science and spirituality. And yet our experience uh, or our beingness is all of one. It's the whole iceberg. It's not just the top. And the conventional science stays focused on the tip of the iceberg, which is obviously um, very biased. Um, and Charlie's work is an example. Um, there's no one else you know, that I know of or that has been, or I'm sure there's been around, but within you know this century that knows quote unquote Charlie never liked the word knowing understands bears the way he understood bears um and that's because he was a very loving person and he was very open not just to bears but to humans and other animals and and so essentially uh his depth of knowledge um scared people and he was ignored and dismissed tacitly respected and admired but because he, as I said earlier, um, his data, <laughs> which is his experiences and depth and understanding, did not fit the paradigm. And so it just so what we come up with is um, wildlife biology and the science and even the neurosciences and stuff is extremely biased because there is a psychosocial, economic, political excising of what is correct and what is not correct in terms of what we need to call the truth. Yeah. So it's not holistic at all. And from that, there's an intrinsic um, and very lethal bias, which is responsible for, you know, the disasters that we've created on this planet. Most of us will not, most of the people who are going to hear and, and see this interview are not going to uh, see much of bears or elephants uh, encounter them in the course of uh, of our daily lives. Um, how do we, uh, what are the lessons that we need to take into our world of nearby birds? If we're lucky, there might be some birds around and some other, uh, you know, and the plants and so on. How do, how do we take this in? And and, uh, and by the way, I think you have a, a this is a, a separate question, I guess. So go ahead and let's talk to that one and then I'll ask you the next okay. one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you don't have, someone asked me the other day, you know, is it ethical to go respectfully to a park to see bears or to see a, an elephant in the zoo? And I said, well, I'm not going to, you know, answer ethical or not ethical. But I said, it doesn't do the bear any good and it doesn't do the elephant any good. Um, we don't need to, to go see a bear. or And that was also Charlie's point. Charlie's point was you don't go out, you know, to, to wilderness to find a bear. You know, you, you just be in nature and um, in service. So I would encourage, you know, that the little junco or sparrow or fly is just as amazing as a bear or an elephant and a spider, you know, to, uh, or a piece of grass, you know, is, is that is just as wondrous. And, and you don't need to travel to the Galapagos. You don't need to travel to someplace else. That's, that's a colonial hangover. The best thing to do is to be respectful and caring and service and dedicate your life 
to 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 the well-being of the planet in that very specific way. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm thinking of uh, Kim again. Back to Kim and uh, and and the priest that he follows is a uh, is from Tibet and is also a, a Jainist. I think, which my mm-hmm. understanding is that's a a spiritual uh, perspective that treats every detail of nature as precious and mm-hmm. and and deserve, deserving of uh, living. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand that you have kind of a, an animal sh- preserve or shelter on your property. Is that right? And if so, well, who's who's living with you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're, you know, my nonprofit is called the Carulo Center for Nonviolence. And I live on 30 acres here in Southern Oregon. And it's a formal sanctuary per se, but really it's a, it's a community. And the animals, um, there's wildlife. We give refuge to wildlife who are hounded and, and slaughtered and disrespected. And uh, it's terrible. Um, and they don't have to be an elephant or, um, you know, some exotic animal. These are our wildlife here in our own backyards. You know, they're struggling. Um, and then we have, quote unquote, rescued um, animals like rabbits and desert tortoises that are disabled, that have an arm or a leg. They were going to be euthanized um, by the wildlife agency. And I take them in and we have one sulcata who's a very big tortoise. And then we have turkeys and chickens and dogs and cats. <laughs> so we're really a community, um, you know, and I think that's kind of the another message I would like to encourage. And that's like be sanctuary for all of life. You know, be sanctuary. It's less doing than it is being. And if you start from a place of being sanctuary, you know, being welcoming, you know, like spiders, well, you know, so what? That's <laughs> you know, learn learn about that that person is just as sentient as you are, and respect them. And you know, like Charlie did, to um, seek to understand their values, seek to understand their their needs and their families, etc. So um, I think that's kind of we had this little slogan like "Make all places sanctuary." The whole planet should be a sanctuary in the sense of um, provide you know providing peace security, dignity for all beings. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's, <laughs> that's a good place for, I think that's a good wrap up for, uh, for this. And, uh, and so I want to thank you for being my guest, being back on Shrink Wrap Radio. Well, thank Dave you. Bradshaw. Today's guest, Gabe Bradshaw, was recently interviewed on episode 840 by my London colleague, Isabella Clark, and I was so impressed by all Dr. Bradshaw had to say in that interview that I was looking for an excuse to have her back on the show. So I suggested we might discuss one of her earlier books, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell. I'm so glad I did. She did not disappoint. Early on, I remarked that it struck me as unusual to write a whole book based only on conversations. It's probably happened before, but offhand, I couldn't think of any examples. Even more remarkable is over the approximately 10 years of their conversations, they never met in person. I'm not even sure they met on Zoom or Skype. I think it may have been mostly or exclusively by phone. And the book was really based on conversations rather than interviews. So she also didn't record the conversations. When Charlie died, she felt a deep ethical responsibility to pull a book together based on her notes and memories of their conversations. Charlie knew there was going to be a book that had been the plan all along, and he had seen and even collaborated on some of the writing as they went along. His death was not unexpected. He had been ill for some time. But when Gay was confronted by the sadness and grief of his actual demise, she found she needed to rethink her approach to the book. 
Even though they had never met in person, the two of them had become so close in their understanding of one another that she felt his spirit moving in her during the final writing. She had a sense that the book that needed to be written was, in the end, jointly authored by her, Charlie, and the Bears. And in fact, the book reads that way. Yes, I've drunk the Kool-Aid. I'm under the spell, and I think you will be too when you buy this remarkable book, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell, by Gay Bradshaw, Charlie Russell, and the Bears, Black, Brown, and Grizzlies. Dr. Dave has given me many hours of interesting listening with his amazing podcasts. This week, I finally clicked on the support button on his website and sent a gift. Maybe you would like to send Dr. Dave a gift in this season of giving to show your appreciation for all his work. It feels good to give back to someone who gives so much. Think about it. It's worth doing. Thank you, Carrie, for that feelingful endorsement and for becoming a financial donor and encouraging others to follow suit. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my return guest, ecologist and Jungian psychologist, Gabe Bradshaw, for speaking with us about her remarkable book, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell. My next interview will be with Shannon Duncan, and we'll be discussing his book, Coming Full Circle, Using Psychedelics to Heal Trauma which is a detailed informative guide on using psychedelics to heal that is intertwined with a deeply personal memoir with Shannon's own journey of healing from trauma. I hope you'll join us for this fascinating interview. And until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.